Our scripture for today is Ephesians 4, 17 through 25. Now this I say and testify in the Lord, that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. They have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity, but that is not the way you learned Christ. Assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him, as the truth is in Jesus, to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds and to put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members one of another. This is the word of the Lord. For this week's verses that we're going through 17 through 24, and as we continue in this series in the book of Ephesians, it's really important to keep context in mind and not interpret individual verses out of context. And so the Ephesians that Paul wrote to were people living in the first century. It was a very, very large city with a very, very large population. It had one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. It was the uh, stadium, the temple of Artemis or temple of Diana. It had at the time the largest theater in the ancient world. It seated over 25,000 people. And just to give you an uh, idea of scale of what that would look like in person whenever you drive down 880 and you drive down Oracle Arena, which is now Oakland Arena, I think. They took the Oracle off of it. Whenever you see that, that houses over 19,000 spectators. So just imagine the size of this. And keep in mind, this is the first century. So no modern day engineering, no huge cranes, nothing like that. No modern day machinery. They were able to build something like that. Now Ephesus was the premier city of Asia Minor. Uh, it's where, where we will find it today. If you were to go, is in modern day Turkey. So if we are, I hope this happens sometime soon, but to trace the steps of Paul again and to go to Turkey, Greece, and Rome, we will stop by Ephesus and you will be able to see this once flourishing port city. And it was one of the richest cities on the planet at the time, one of the most top prosperous cities in all of the Roman Empire. And it was once considered the most important trading center in the entire Mediterranean region and home to one of the largest business districts in the entire Roman Empire, servicing these massive amounts of goods arriving, departing from that harbor, and then also the caravans traveling all throughout the ancient royal road. So when you get an idea of Ephesus, you have to think of its significance. You have to think of the magnitude that this city was second only to Rome in terms of being this cosmopolitan center of culture and commerce. And this temple of Artemis greatly influenced that culture. And it greatly influenced all the inhabitants there spiritually and philosophically. So if you were to put yourself in the shoes of an Ephesian, you would be in this awesome place that is a flourishing, prosperous, and wealthy city. And you live in this really powerful city that is culturally relevant 
significant, influential, and you lived in a city dominated spiritually, philosophically, morality-wise, coming from the temple of Artemis. All of that would be influencing you. And then if you put yourself in the shoes of a Christian in this first century Ephesian city, you're a minority. You're not seen as significant culturally or relevant-wise or influential. And your message of Jesus Christ is not one that is very welcome in this place that is dominated by the temple of Artemis. And so the Ephesians thought they were all really, already really, really great people, a really great city, really powerful, and that Jesus had nothing to offer to them. And there was a lot of opposition to Christianity at the time, actually, because the Ephesians were threatened by this minority group of Christians, even though they lacked power and they lacked influence. But one of the things that they were threatened by was how it preached and taught against their own prosperity. Because people came from all over the world to Ephesus to worship Artemis. And then this huge market developed in this city because of this. That this marketplace was created by the people to bring to Diana what they had to offer. So they'd offer these little trinkets or sacrifices. They had this whole marketing ploy to bring wealth to these merchants. But then the message of Jesus and Christianity was completely different. Paul's letter to the Ephesians told of who Christ is, who God is, that God has blessed us in Christ every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, chapter 1, verse 3, that God adopted us to himself through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved, chapter 1, verses 4 through 6, and then that we've obtained an inheritance, chapter 1, verse 11. And then on the other side of it was this whole industry that was created in Ephesus marketing Artemis. And what could they bring to her? How could they appease her? And by what could they do for her? And their hope was to be blessed by her by bringing things to her. And not so with Christianity. You don't bring anything to God to earn God's favor. It is by grace that you and I have been saved. We have been given. Ephesians chapter 2, starting in verse 4. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive with Christ, by grace you have been saved, and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us, in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not as a result of work, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. We don't earn favor by our good works, but we are created for good works. We are God's workmanship, and we are created in Christ to be made like Jesus Christ. How are we to be made more like Jesus? And this is in relationship with one another. Created in Christ for good works. This is in relationship 
with others. Those works are for others. The good works aren't for us individually. They're for others. So with that groundwork Paul lays out in chapters 1 through 3, then we get to chapter 4, and then it reads this in verse 1. I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. And so to the Ephesians, when you walk out to that Ephesian culture where you are a minority, walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. And same thing with same message to those of us in Christ. When you walk into that Bay Area where you are a minority and you don't have the significance or relevance that the culture has on everyone else, walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. And there are people who witness our works. They witness our words. And what will they see? Will they see how Jesus has transformed our lives. We arrive today at verses 17 through 24, and in verses 17 through 19, these verses remind those in Christ of our, how we live our life. And, and those who are outside of Christ, it's different from them. Then in verses 20 through 24, Paul writes about who we've become, that we've put off our old self, verse 22. We've put on a new self, verse 24. And then next week we're going to close out the chapter with verses 25 through 32. And in those verses, Paul writes about what we have to look forward to. So essentially 17 through 19 is who we were, 20 through 24, who we are, 25 through 32, who we will be. We'll just be looking at who we were and who we are. Next week is who we will be. Paul wrote who we were earlier in Ephesians chapter 2, starting in verse 1. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, of whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. We were dead. Dead because of sin. Now, many people will admit to being imperfect. I don't think anyone out there says, like, yeah, I'm, I'm perfect. Everyone out there will confess that they can use some improvement in their life in that they're unhealthy or dysfunctional or there's some other issue that's going on with them. But how many people will actually admit that they are dead in their trespasses, that they are dead in their sins? Outside of Christ, one is dead to their sins, and it's not until they are regenerated in Christ that they are made alive. Now, the problem is that people don't see that they're dead. How does one in Christ know that they are indeed alive in Christ? One big indicator is how you live your life. Has God transformed your life to reflect Jesus Christ? by how you live. And your life will testify to the reality of these beliefs. If you are in Christ, you are God's child, there are these standards that come with your adoption as 
a daughter as a son. So if your life does not follow these godly standards, if your, your life's actions are inconsistent with that of Jesus Christ, then one needs to question whether they have indeed been regenerated. Do you really have a new self? Are you really a child of God or do you just think that you are? Because if you are, there is a life change, a, a reborn life from who you once were to who you are becoming. Verse 17, Now this I say and testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do. And so Paul is testifying in the Lord. He's making the strongest point possible to get this point across. And he's, he's not saying try. Because you can't try to make yourself a child of God. You aren't God's child by doing what God's children do as much as you are a child acting like God's children because you are his child. Someone who's just acting like it just isn't, right? I, I'm not my kid's friend's father, even though they... they play jokes on me all the time because there's I have four girls and so they have all these little girlfriends that are in in the neighborhood and so when we go to a park and everything they all call me dad and we all have masks on so they can't really tell the difference between all the different kids and so I have like a dozen kids I'm taking to the park and they're all calling me dad but I'm really only father to four of them right that they aren't my children unless we go through a process together to legitimize the relationship between a parent and a child. And the way we become children of God is through this process called grace. By grace you have been saved, chapter 2, verse 5. And when we are saved by grace, there are these characteristics in God's children that make it obvious that we are His children. We are to reflect who we really are. There's to be a way to distinguish who we belong to and who we resemble, that we look the part, but to be who we really are in that, and that it's not just this facade of who we look like, but there's, there's an actual belonging that whatever had a grip on you before to Christ has lost its grip on you, and now you are free to live in Christ. Have you received Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior? And how do you do that? Well, it can happen anywhere. It can happen anytime. And what needs to happen is you'll need to acknowledge Jesus Christ for who He is, what Christ has done for you, why He did that for you, and if there's any sense of exploring that gift of grace God has for you, that, that speaks to the fact that God is actually working in you right now. And so if you hear that voice, receive that grace, that you accept that. And Jesus said in Luke chapter 5, verse 32, I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. There are people who believe that their actions justify their belonging to God. And that's simply not true. What you do is not how you become a child of God. 
Accepting what God has done for you is how you become a child of God. And what you do after that acceptance proves you do belong to him. That God initiated that love toward you. Romans chapter 5 verse 8. God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, God, Christ, died for us. Become a child of God and you'll change. You must no longer walk as the Gentiles do. And so in other words, don't get swept up by the culture like so many did when they lived in Ephesus. Just like so many do in the Bay Area. Now it's really important to keep in mind that the Ephesians, this letter to the Ephesians is is addressed to those in Christ. It's to explain how you once were. So carrying on with verse 17. In the futility of their minds, they are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. They have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. Now, you wouldn't just approach someone outside of Christ and tell them these things, right? You have a futile mind. You have a darkened understanding. You are ignorant. You are hard-hearted, callous, sensual, greedy. You are impure. You, you know the cultural context we're in, and actually you don't even have to know cultural context to just know that this is rude, to just go up and say this to somebody. And we are to speak truth, yes, we, we speak truth to things, but we also, as we speak truth to the culture, we, we love it. We love the people in there. And so these verses are addressed to those in Christ. Remember, Ephesians is addressed to those in Christ. It's, it's describing who we were before the grace of God took over our lives. It's not for you to use this as a condemnation of, of people outside of Christ. We are reminded of who we once were. We know our cultural context. So now that we know it, how do we share God's message of love to a world that rejects this message. Now, people in Christ are not any more intelligent than those who do not know Christ. When the psalmist wrote in Psalm 14 and Psalm 53, he writes, the fool says in his heart, there is no God. He's, he's writing that those people are foolish. He's not writing that those people are dumb, that they are unwise to the truth of God, that people will find God exercising wisdom, not intellect. That intellectualism will give you this incomplete, it will give you this dry answer to who you are, to who Jesus is, to why Christ came to save us and why it all even matters. Wisdom's different. Wisdom gives us this color to all of those questions. It gives us beauty and wholeness. It gives us these feelings and meanings to those answers. Now, why couldn't we experience the love of Christ before receiving the grace of God? Because of the futility of the mind. Because of that darkened understanding, the alienation from God, the ignorance, the hardness of heart, the callousness, the sensuality, the greed, the impurity. That is why. That was your life outside of Christ. That was your old self. So stop living like your old self from which you were delivered from 
And don't get pulled back into the ways of your old self. It's easier to hide what's happening on the outside, isn't it? It's so much easier to hide what it's like on the outside. Because people can see what you do and how you spend your time and your money. The more difficult thing to see is what's happening on the inside. And that's where these verses are addressing. Your mind, your understanding, your heart, your feelings. Those are the more challenging parts to see and to deal with. And when we alienate ourselves from others in Christ, it's easier to go back to those old ways. And so you see why it's important for us to get back into the discipline of regularly gathering together as a church, to worship together, to commune together, to fellowship, pray, and to, to feast on God's word together. Verses 17 through 19 are what we once were, but now we are alive in Christ. If not for God's grace, we'd be deeper into this darkness of verses 17 through 19. We, we don't use these verses to judge other people. It is for us to understand who we once were. And then it leads us to this greater compassion and this greater empathy and love towards others who are outside of Christ. We have to keep faith in Christ. We have to continue believing in Christ, which is a very challenging thing to do in our culture, in our world. See, God understands our culture. God understands our world. And it's why we have his word in verses 17 through 19, describing how we once were and describing our world without Christ. It's 2,000 years later. Paul wrote this letter, right? Can we actually say that we're any better? Listen to the news and read what's going on throughout the whole world. We are still given up to sensuality. We're still given up to greedy of every practice, of, of every kind of impurity. Nothing has changed in our world, even though we have so much better education, technology. We have evolved in our legislation. We are so much more wealthy. We have so much more medicine, access to food, access to fresh water. All of those outside metrics that people around the world use and they see and it, everything's growing, but the problem is it hasn't changed who we are on the inside. It is still the old self. And without Christ, there is no new self to put on. And that is the problem. Ephesians 2 verse 4 has this great phrase, but God... But God, God changes everything. That, that once dark trajectory of your life, who you once were, doesn't have to lead to your own destruction. In Christ, there is hope. There's, there's life in the present, who we are in Christ. Verses 20 through 24, you don't have to live like you used to. There's a change from who you once were to who you are in Christ. Verse 20, but that is not the way you learned Christ. Isn't that an interesting phrase, learned Christ? Because it's not learned about Christ. You learned Christ. That it's personal. It's direct. That it's not just information. It is transformation. That it's up close. A lot of people can tell you about Christ. All you got to do is read a textbook. And you can tell other people about Christ. 
but not as many people can tell you about their intimacy with Christ, their experience with Christ, that it's not merely a description anymore, like when you're reading a book and you tell me about Jesus and you can tell all those things, but if you learn Christ, there's this closeness, there's this tenderness, there's this affection in the relationship. Verse 21, assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus. Now there's this word in verse 21 that does not appear in the original Greek manuscripts and it's this word about. It's not in there. The translation directly from Greek is you have heard him. Not heard about him, you heard him. That those in Christ hear his voice. We hear Christ in his word when it is studied, preached, taught, meditated upon. Christ speaks to us today and he teaches us in Jesus. The truth is in Jesus. The truth is not in a religion or in some philosophy. It's in the living God. The truth is in Jesus. The same Jesus who said in John chapter 14 verse 6, I am the way, I am the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Those in Christ learned Christ, we heard him, and we were taught in him personally, directly, and intimately. Now we evangelize when it's personally moving, when, when it directly touches us, when we're intimately affected. You're, you're not as excited or passionate to share about a restaurant you heard about, right? I heard about that restaurant. It's great, I heard. You, you're not that excited, but if you, if someone gives you their experience of actually dining there and experiencing the ambiance and the service and everything that's there, you're, you're more enthusiastic about it to share about it. But if, if you haven't personally tasted it, you can't share that. I heard that it was good. But if you actually tasted it, you can share that goodness. It's good. It's good. And you want to tell people about it. That place I went to was awesome. That was the best I've ever had. Right? Psalm 34, verse 8. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. It's not about how the Lord is good that you tasted, that you saw. You have this intimate and direct experience with the Lord. And so then you want to share that good news. You want to share what you tasted and what you saw. It's more than just describing about. You have a very intimate knowledge of what it did to you, of what you tasted, of what you saw, of how, did, how it made you feel, and how it affected those around you who experienced it with you. And the only people who will even come close to what you know what you tasted and saw are those who experienced it directly just like you did. Peter wrote in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 3, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. You experienced it yourself. People have to taste it for themselves. And when you taste that it is indeed good, you want to tell everyone. And what needs to be told is that the truth is in Jesus. And if you don't have this conviction, 
Have you really tasted that the Lord is good? If all that is stood for in Christianity is that we live a good life, that we want to leave the world a better place than uh, that we were here, than when after we die, we just want to leave it in a better place, that we positively affect society. That's too small of a picture. Do you see that? That is way too small. Read the Bible. A good life is not promised to you and me. It's not promised to us. And the world that, that we know is not going to be better right before Christ returns. Read the Bible. And when Christ returns, it's going to be a new earth. It's not going to be what, what, what it was and just better, an, a better old self. It is a new thing. It doesn't mean we, are, we aren't to be good stewards. It doesn't mean that we aren't to do good. But what is the ultimate end goal? Is Christ in that? Or are we about this world too much that we aren't in the things of Christ? Is the truth of Jesus in our message, in how we live? Are people learning Christ, hearing Christ, taught Christ? Not about but the actual intimate relationship with Christ. This is who we are now in Christ. We learned Christ, we heard Christ, and we were taught in Christ. Now you notice that all past tenses, right? Because if you are in Christ, then that's what happened, that those things happened. And then we don't get any imperatives until we get to verses 22 through 24. And here it is. To put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds, and to put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. When we trust Jesus in Christ, we put off our old self and we put on our new self. We were once enslaved to sin, and now we are set free from it. By grace, we are saved. God's gift of grace. When we repented, God regenerated. We were made alive from our trespasses and our sins. We are transformed. See, church is not about all just the, the good stuff that we do. It's not about the community that we have and how it makes us feel, even though those are some of the benefits that we do receive. But truth be told, other places outside of the church do those things. Do other places outside of the, outside of the church not have great community? Do they not do great things for the community? Do they not do good? Of course they do. But what other places don't have is God saving people's lives for eternity. That God is delivering people from darkness into eternal light. And this is the picture of baptism. Right? There's this old self that is entering into the water, and then upon coming out of that depth of water is this new self. That that former manner of life, that deceitful desire that was there is being renewed in the spirit of our minds, and we are actively put 
lifting off that old self and actively putting on the renewed spirit of the mind and actively putting on the new self. Now, how do we do this? The study of the Bible is so important for this putting off of the old self, for the renewing of your mind, for the putting on of the new self. It's one of the most, if not the most important spiritual discipline to practice in order for this to happen. Why? Because this is how we learned Christ. This is how we hear Christ. This is how we are taught Christ. As truth is in Jesus, the Word of God, that old self, that former manner of life that, that is corrupt through deceitful desires, doesn't disappear, does it? We all know this firsthand. We know that it doesn't just disappear. It is always present with us. It's always there, whether it's through enemies of darkness or through the world or, or through, through our own flesh. Just this constant temptation we battle on multiple fronts, and it is relentless. We are always dealing with it. And that old self will try to work itself back into your life until the day you die. Very encouraging, I know. But that's why it's active and that we need to put it off. You, you have to keep doing it. You have to keep putting that off. And you don't stop there. You have to actively put that off and then you, you can't just leave it. You have to actively then put something on. You know that when people are teaching like, hey, you know, if you, if you plant watermelon, you're not going to grow apricots. Or if you plant... Uh, uh, whatever, you're not going to get this other crop, right? You, you, here's the problem. When you don't plant anything, you still grow something. Weeds, right? Weeds will grow. You have to actively put something on. You can't just put off your old self and leave it and say, like, I, I'm good, I'm just putting my old self. You have to actively do something in in response, you have to renew your mind. You have to put on your new self. Because if you don't, it's just weeds. You're, you're going to get something. You don't get nothing. So we have to actively renew our minds. We have to actively put on a new self. And there needs to be this evidence of transformation. Otherwise, there's no proof of regeneration. God provides justification to those who are active in their sanctification. And so we are directly and actively made alive in Christ. Jesus invites you to a life in him, to learn Christ, hear him, to be taught in him as the truth is in Jesus. And if you hear Christ, respond to him. Respond to him. Become a child of God. Put off your old self. Renew your mind and put on a new self. It doesn't mean all your problems go away. Not at all. Doesn't even mean your circumstances will change. They might. I've heard of miraculous stories. All of you guys, I think, here know Billy. Addicted to alcohol, addicted to drugs, and when he accepted Christ, it was gone. Amazing. Right? It, it happens. I'm not saying it doesn't. More people that I've talked to, though, it doesn't just disappear. 
You deal with stuff. You're constantly putting off that old self. You're constantly renewing your mind. You're constantly putting on a new self. And then when those old issues move on and you've kind of gotten rid of those old issues, there are just new ones awaiting for you. Just new ones pop up. And this is life. This is how life is. But you have Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is there with you in all of it through all of it with you. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, you never desert us. You are always there, even when things feel so wrong, and even though we've been so wronged, that there are pain and fear in our life, but we don't have to go about it alone. We know that you are for us and that if we accept you by faith, there isn't something that we need to prove to you. You've already gifted us grace. And if we accept that and we repent of those sins that we are dead to, you regenerate us. You give us the power to put off the old self, to renew our minds and to put on a new self. Lord, I pray for anyone here that does not know you in that intimate way, and maybe they've just heard about you, but they didn't learn you, hear you. They haven't been taught in you. Lord, I pray for that intimate, direct relationship with you, that it's not some distant thing that they've just heard about you, but that they can have it for themselves. Have mercy on their life, Lord Jesus. In your name, amen. Let's uh, take communion together. And if you didn't grab communion elements on your way in, um, they'll be handed out to you. You just need to stick up your hand and Stephanie will make her way down to you. But if you have them, let's take the wafer out of that top layer of this. I don't know what you call this. Anyone know what this is called? This contraption? Contraption. But this is symbolizing the body of Christ broken for us. And as we take this together, just remembering what Christ has done for us, You know, we have uh, the society that is, is taking this, but without taking inventory of their heart. So if you're harboring a, a bitterness or a resentment towards others, let's just take an inventory of those things and pause and posture yourself towards Christ before taking this. And as you are ready, let's take this together. And here we have the symbol of the blood of Christ. On Christ's return, it's not so he makes the world a better place. He makes a new world. There's a new creation in us. It's, it's newness. Thank you, Jesus, for your sacrifice. Let's take this together.
Lord Jesus, we were instructed by you to continue in this sacrament of communion until you return. And we are awaiting for that. We pray that lives are transformed, not for just the temporariness of, of this span of life on earth, but for eternity. In Jesus' name, amen.